and welcome to another week of Antidotes. I am your host, Christine. Welcome back. I have got another awesome guest for you. But first, I wanted to say thank you to everyone that has left a review. It is really awesome. I love that you guys are reaching out to me, that you're commenting on all of our posts on social media. Uh, I love hearing from everyone. I love that there are people listening all over the world. It's so crazy. We've had more listeners in places like Norway and Singapore and Hong Kong, and it's just mind-boggling. And I think I keep using the same words over and over again just to explain how incredible this whole podcast thing has been. So I'm really appreciative of all of you guys, uh, the listeners. So please just keep reaching out. Please keep leaving those awesome reviews because the podcast is getting noticed. And because of the interaction and the reviews, I've been able to get into contact with some more listeners. And I have some really cool guests and stories coming up for you guys that are not just same old American nurses or nurse practitioners like myself. Not that I, I, you know, not that there's anything wrong with American nurses and EMTs. And I definitely have plenty of more interesting stories for you myself. However, I know you guys like to hear stuff from all over the world. So I really want to keep bringing that to you. So the more we get to share, uh, the more I get to reach out to people from places that I never would have imagined being able to talk to people from. So there are more international guests that are coming. And the more we keep spreading the podcast, the more I can talk to people like that and be social and step out of my comfort zone by being like, hey, you want to talk to me on a podcast, even though I'm a complete stranger. So it's really fun. And I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast as much as I'm enjoying doing it. It's a really great stress reliever for me after sometimes very stressful days. So I just want to thank you guys again and always reach out to me on social media. So Facebook Antidote Stories and Medicine podcast page, but also the podcast group. Uh, We're trying to have more discussions and make that more active for you guys and post articles and just little things for medical education or just kind of fun uh, stuff that I see throughout the web and the world for you guys to get involved with. And then, of course, Instagram Antidotes podcast and Twitter, Antidotes Pod. My Twitter is Christine the NP. Or you can always shoot me an email at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts on the show. Let me know if you have cool stories that you either want to share with me on the podcast through an interview or you want me to just read your crazy story. Happy to do that too. Whatever you guys want to do, I love interacting with you. And I just want to say thank you guys for listening. So on to this week's episode. We've talked a lot about nurses. We've talked about EMS. We have had a nurse practitioner. We had a therapist. So now we are going to get into someone else, someone who has a different role in medicine. So this week, everybody, we have a different member of the healthcare team, someone in the healthcare world that most people probably don't know anything about. And to be completely honest, a lot of people in the healthcare world probably have no idea what they do, although they probably have seen the words. This week joining me is a speech language pathologist, Annie Hi, Annie. Welcome and tell people what you do. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm, like you said, a speech language pathologist and I do a lot of different things. But right now I'm working in outpatient therapy and I have a couple side jobs. <laughs> I think we all do. Skilled, yeah, skilled nursing <laughs> facilities, one in a hospital. My main focus is swallowing therapy. So patients with dysphagia, I uh, treat them. And I also do cognitive therapy, speech and language therapy, hence the speech language pathologist title. Yeah. And pretty much I tell people, you know, when I walk into a room and say, hi, I'm here to do a swallow evaluation, they say, but you're the speech pathologist. And I say, neck up. 
Yeah. Everything from the <laughs> neck up. <laughs> <laughs> Got you covered. So I obviously have been working in healthcare for a long time. I am a nurse practitioner. Like I should know what I'm talking about when I talk about these things. But when we were talking about you even coming on the podcast very casually, I was like, oh yeah, I imagine you've got great stories about helping people learn to speak. And you're like, well, hold up a minute. Actually, the coolest thing is like telling people that they can eat again. And I was like, well, I feel like an ignorant ass. (laughs) But, But there's so much that we as healthcare professionals just don't even know about speech language pathology. Yes. So that is my favorite part of the job is <laughs> sending, I mean, somebody who has a feeding tube for months. And I mean, think about eating. I love it. It's a huge part of your life. You know, you go out with friends to eat, you eat dinner with your family, and these people don't get to do that. And then after months, yeah. I finally get to tell them, yep, go ahead, go out to dinner with your family, enjoy a burger. <laughs> <laughs> so what what got you into this? Actually, so speech-language pathologists don't only work in the medical field. They also work in the educational field. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kids go to the speech therapist in elementary school because they can't say their R's. They have a lisp. And when I was in elementary school, I was jealous of all the kids that got to go to speech (laughs) therapist. (laughs) And I never got to go. So I always said, I want to be a speech therapist when I grow up so I can play games. That's adorable. (laughs) And up until grad school, I wanted to work in a school. I wanted to work in a school with kids with autism. And then I had a placement in a hospital in grad school. And I never wanted to step foot in an elementary school ever again. (laughs) That's how I got into the medical field. That's such a like inspiring story. Like I always knew I wanted to do it. I did not know I wanted to be a nurse, much less a practitioner. Oh, fuck no. (laughs) No, I didn't. I was like, I'm going to be an architect. And then I'm going to be a lawyer. And then I'm going to be a doctor and then I'm going to be a I don't even know what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many 8-year-olds can say they want to be a speech language pathologist? Most can't even pronounce it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's how you knew you, you were destined because you could pronounce it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you said grad school? Yes. What kind of training goes into it? So, I got my bachelor's in 4 years and then there's a two-year graduate program afterwards. And there's a couple schools in the country that you can do a five-year program and you get your bachelor's and master's degree in five years. But I did the traditional six-year route in grad school. I had a clinical placement all four semesters. So I started treating essentially as soon as I got my bachelor's degree. And we have, I mean, I had a full course load of classes and a full-time clinical placement for three of my four semesters. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was not a fun time. (laughs) Yeah. That's like nurse practitioner school. We go to school and go to clinicals. But like PAs will do classes and then do clinicals like afterward. And PAs, feel free to correct me, but I think that's how they do it. It's a little bit different. Yeah. And there's some... There's some master's programs that do that. Like they front load all of your classes into one year and then you just go to placements your second year. So in that case, people can like move home and do their, you know, they might go to grad school on the other side of the country, but move home for their placements. But I was lucky enough to go to school in Philadelphia and I live in the suburbs. So like I commuted to school and my placements were, I mean, my one placement was at the hospital I work at now and it's a five minute drive from my house. So I was lucky enough to have it all in one place. And it's nice to have your professors there also. Yeah. 
you're still learning. Like I can't imagine being set as a free bird going off to treat people essentially in a full-time job with no one holding me accountable pretty much. Didn't you have like clinical preceptors or people? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we have our, our super, we always called them our supervisors, but they, I thought it was nice to be able to go to class and like debrief. Yeah. 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 I'd then get to go sit in class with, I think there were 35 people in my cohort and I'd get to sit in class and talk to people about things. We got to problem solve together. Like it was nice to have that outside input from 35 people plus our professors rather than just our supervisor. Yeah, absolutely. People like want to encourage you to learn. And we did that with their clinicals too. We had our like discussion groups and then classes. Mm -hmm. And it's really helpful because our preceptors are like, I'm busy doing my job. I don't have time to like, they teach you, but they don't Mm -hmm. have time to like go into that much depth as you need to. Right. So what made you want to just change your focus and just be hospital based? So I love the fact that as a medical speech pathologist, I get to help people regain something they once had. Yeah. So, you know, people who could eat their whole lives and then they have a stroke and they're, whether they're on a modified diet, you know, puree diet and thickened liquids, and I get to help them work back to being able to eat regular solid food or somebody who lost their ability to speak Mm -hmm. and help them regain their language. I find that so much more rewarding than working with a kid who has lived their whole life not being able to speak perfectly, but it doesn't really affect them. Yeah, yeah, they're used to it. You know, they they don't care. They don't know what they don't have. Mm -hmm. But I like working with people to help them get back something they once had that they want back. Yeah. And I don't know. I find that much, much, much more rewarding. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. It's it's more healing than like teaching. Mm -hmm. And I love, you know, I loved the whole idea of having a school schedule, having summers off, (laughs) but it's not worth it to have to deal with parents, I don't think. (laughs) 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 Which sometimes dealing with children of adult patients is just as bad, but. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, we, we won't get into that. <laughs> I have <laughs> half of my practice is geriatrics and I, I love I love my geriatric patients. Mm-hmm. They have like the best stories. Yes. <laughs> but then they have their children and sometimes their children are like, sometimes they're great and they're like, mom, you're freaking out. Calm down. And other times they're just not great. <laughs> They're, sometimes they're worse than parents. I'm telling you. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. All very well intentioned. I haven't had one of them in a long time. Yeah. I haven't had a bad one in a long time. So I'm going to count my blessings. <laughs> <laughs> All part of the job. Yep. So, so speaking of people that you're kind of, I guess, notable in your memory, what are some of the interesting stories that you've had in your career? Or I guess, how long have you been doing this? So I actually, I haven't been doing it that long. I just graduated from grad school in May of 2016. Oh, okay. Yeah. Especially so. when I got graduated from NP school. So it's oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah. So I mean, I've been in the field, I guess technically you could say I've been in the field for four years, including grad school, but I've been on my own for about two and a half. But SLPs, we have to do a clinical fellowship year. So that's like nine months right after you graduate of working, like paid work. But I had a direct supervisor that kind of oversaw me. Mm-hmm. But like I signed off on everything. I was technically licensed. It was like a provisional license. So I guess I've really been flying solo for a year and a half, we'll say. So an interesting story. I mean, one that just recently happened, I will say, like sometimes it blows my mind that 
people, I guess I'm young. I mean, I'm 26. Yeah. You know, I'll walk in. I, I work with mainly geriatrics. So my full-time job is outpatient in the home. So I do house calls essentially. Mm-hmm. And we deal with Medicare. So it's a generally older population. And I walk in and they're like, you're just a kid. How do you know what you're talking about? And I'm like, okay. Yeah. I- no, I went to school for six years. I had classes on all of this. I passed everything. I had plenty of placements. I, you know, explained myself. I get all the time because I am young and I look younger than I am. And I get, you're not a real doctor. I'm like, but I'm a real nurse practitioner. So there's a certificate on the wall that says that I can do this and I'm going to prescribe you. (laughs) Do you want the drugs or not? (laughs) You can go somewhere else if you want to. But I had a, I have a client who was in and out of the hospital with respiratory issues constantly. She has mm-hmm. dementia mm-hmm. and in and out of the hospital on vents, whole nine yards, constantly getting pneumonia. Sorry to interrupt you to explain for people that are not medical. So vents, tubes in her throat, the machine is breathing for her. Exactly. So a lot of risk of infection and everything. Mm-hmm. And not to mention that tubes going directly down their airway past their vocal cords, it's weakening them. You know, they're not swallowing. whole whole different set of issues but this woman just recurrent pneumonia got to the point where her doctors were just prescribing antibiotics like didn't know what to do so finally they get speech on board and I go to evaluate her and I put her on nectar thickened liquids Mm -hmm. so there's three different levels of liquids thin liquids regular water what you and I drink then nectar thick liquids are a little thicker and then honey thick liquids are the viscosity of honey. So I put her one level up from thin liquids and the daughter calls me that night. I have to give my personal cell phone number to all of my clients, which is fine. But she calls me and she just says, thank you so much. It made such a difference in mom the past two days. She hasn't coughed once at mealtime. She sounds so much better. I was like, I I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I did it. And I sat on the phone with her for like 30 minutes telling her where to find thickened liquids because I gave her a sample. Like I gave her a sample of thickener and I said, this is going to last you 32 ounces, but mom's got to drink more than 32 ounces in a day. So you have to go buy more. And lo and behold, mom has not been in the hospital for the past couple months, as far as I know. So, and she's been on the thickened liquids, slurping them up like there's no tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) but it's just like one of those moments where people put up a fight oh I have to I have to do that extra work do I really have to do it yeah like try it try it try it for a couple of days what's the harm he's gonna do you're just gonna end up right where you are that's what I always say right nothing's gonna change Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work. And so for anyone that doesn't know, there's this big correlation between if you're choking on your fluid that you're drinking and then it doesn't go in down the right pipe and it goes into your lungs and you aspirate, you get aspiration pneumonia Correct. and this horrible infection because you shouldn't have juice in your lungs, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically. <laughs> and then you're getting all these infections. And if your vocal cords are weak from either infection or dementia, or because people with dementia just forget to swallow correctly sometimes or they rush. And then you have all these infections and we're giving you tons of antibiotics. And I refer people to speech all the time because I'm like, they just keep getting aspiration pneumonia. And I'm telling the kids, are you sitting them up at mealtimes? No, they're really weak. They need to lay down. I'm like, please sit them up. (laughs) And then they cough. I'm like, yes, I know. Let gravity be our friend. Sit Mm -hmm. them up and like things are draining. (laughs) Yeah. 
And I always say, you know, coughing's not a bad thing. Sure. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't want to cough every time you eat and drink, but coughing is your body's way of protecting itself. You know, something's going down the wrong pipe and your body's saying, hell no, get the fuck out of there. (laughs) That's when you start hacking your lungs up because your body does not want that crap in your lungs. So coughing's not a bad thing because I've seen people with silent aspiration. I Mm. literally just evaluated somebody today who was on a regular diet with thin liquids her whole life and she went to the hospital and had a modified barium swallow study done, which is an x-ray where you eat and drink every texture mixed with barium so you can see exactly where it goes. And she aspirated every single bite and every single sip of liquid oh, she God. took and did not cough once. Wow. Her body had no idea. Barium lights up on the x-ray. Yeah. So, you know, so then we can see where it goes. And yeah, that's scary. Mm-hmm. You, have, you don't have any warning sign about it. Right. And she and she's another one that was in and out of the hospital for the last year with respiratory failure. And mm-hmm. I mean, it was recommended she get a peg tube, a feeding tube, but she ended up refusing. So yeah, we'll, and that's everybody's right. Right. We, yeah. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Has been anything, you know, especially challenging for you to treat? Yes. Dementia. (laughs) (laughs) They don't like to drink water. Right. They don't. And they don't know they're hungry. Yeah. You know, as people age, they kind of lose their appetite. I feel like that's commonplace. I'm waiting for that part. Say that again. (laughs) That's the only part I'm waiting for. (laughs) (laughs) So people with dementia, they don't feel hungry and then they don't know that they haven't eaten yet. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But I find dementia hard in the sense that a lot of people want cognitive treatment for their loved ones with dementia and they want me to fix them. Yeah. But I can't change dementia. I can't help them get their memory back. Yeah, you and me both. Right. So all I can do is help the family. Like when I go to do cognitive treatment for people with dementia, I'm not really treating the patient. I'm more so treating the family or caregivers to tell them, okay, this is what you can do to help your loved one. Like I can't, I can't teach your loved one to do this because just the nature of their disease, it's hard for them to learn something new. Right. So it's all about modifications, but I've run into a lot of family members that don't don't want to do it. And they just want their family member fixed. And like, no matter how hard I try, I cannot take their dementia away. I wish I could, but I can't. So kind of rationalizing yeah. that and educating. I see this a lot because I round in nursing homes and mm-hmm. it's easier. They'll do better. Like if someone comes in for respite care and the nurses are great at okay, we're encouraging foods that they like. We're encouraging the right textures. We're encouraging, you know, whatever fluids that they like, if it's a good color for them or whatever. Right. Because people with dementia just have an aversion to drinking water. So they're Mm -hmm. chronically dehydrated, which makes it harder for you to eat. And then also you're getting these urinary tract infections, Mm -hmm. which the first sign of a urinary tract infection in anyone that's elderly is confusion. Right. So you have acute confusion with dementia. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then you're not eating even more. Which makes it fun time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, all right, how are we going to get them to eat? And with the nurses, it's easy to be like, let's do this. And like, what have you found that they do like to eat? And someone's sitting there feeding them. But yeah, when someone goes home, it's it's a struggle because then they're at risk for everything else again. 
Right. And the first two years of my career, I worked in a nursing home doing short term rehab. And a lot of people think they're going to be sent home perfect. No, they're going to go home. From my perspective, family members want their loved ones and the patient want to go home on a regular diet with thin liquids. And I say you don't need to be on a regular diet with thin liquids to go home. Yeah. I can send you home on a modified diet and you can modify a diet. Now, you're going to have to buy the puree food. You're going to have to buy the thickener and they don't want to do it. They want they want to be made perfect, but that's not what we're here for. We're here to get you home. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really rough thing of like, what are they going to be compliant with versus mm-hmm. what is the best thing for the patient? Right. Yeah. Because if they're just straight up not going to do it, mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter. So you're like, all right, well, what are these little concessions that we're going to make? Right. And that's another thing that's hard for me. Like I run into a lot of conversations over like comfort measures, like telling, especially in the hospital, you know, if somebody is aspirating. So in the hospital, I do bedside swallow evaluations. Mm -hmm. Like everybody who comes in with signs and symptoms of stroke have stroke alert called, which is an automatic speech and language and swallow evaluation. And a lot of people who are aspirating, we tell them you have to be NP nothing by mouth. Mm -hmm. And we recommend alternative means of nutrition, whether that be a peg tube, or if they're expected to be in the hospital for a long time, they might get the NG tube. But if they're getting ready to be discharged, and they're still MPO, a lot of times it's the SLP, at least in my experience, who brings up the conversation of comfort feeds, do not resuscitate, you know, changing your advanced directives, which is hard. Because people want everything to be done to keep them alive. And I say, okay, then I can't put you on a diet because that's not going to keep you alive at this point. It's going to make you sick and make you get worse. So like, we obviously aren't going to send people home not on a diet. We just like, I've never been there for the, the end game of it, but we end up recommending they be on like a puree diet with thin liquids for mm-hmm. like airway clearance and good mucous membranes. But it's hard because a a lot of times I'm the, the person who brings up like, okay, you might want to discuss your code status. Right. Because if I let you eat a cheeseburger and drink a soda with a straw, it's not going to help you get better at this point. Yeah. And it's, and then if they choke, mm-hmm. which is the concern, right? then they're going to go into cardiac arrest and then yep. we have to do CPR on them. Right. And those are generally poor outcomes for someone that has already had a stroke or whatever. It is that balance of how do we make you happy, but we also mm-hmm. don't kill you. What is your quality of life? Right. Is your quality of life cheeseburgers and sodas with straws? Then, okay, great. Or do you want to live another couple years, maybe more than that, if you mm-hmm. are modifying your diet right now? Right. But some some people don't see that. That's a very rational question for someone that has seen a lot of these things, I think. But for certain people, like, oh, that doctor lady's telling me I can't have cheeseburgers or just I'm going to live my life. What's the point? Or for someone that's like in their 90s and they're like, screw it. I've had a great time. Right. Send me out on a cheeseburger. <laughs> and it's like, oh, all right, well. Good for you. Yeah. I, do it up. Go on with your bad self. You do it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> and you, 
you have to have these conversations mm-hmm. and you have to be really frank about them. Right. And you do. And it's like, it's a shame. And I, I remember I had one guy in the hospital who I work in like a level one like stroke hospital or the stroke center of my area. So we get a lot, a lot of massive strokes and Mm. people had brought up like the idea of changing his code status. And he wasn't, he was younger. He wasn't in his nineties, but he wasn't like my age. Right. Yeah. Middle age. Right. Right. And the code status had been brought up. No, no, no. I want everything done. I want everything done. And he was NPO for, I mean, this man was in the hospital for like weeks, I think. And I went in and he thought today was his day. Like he thought today was the day that he was going to get to eat lunch and it was all going to go his way. And a lot of times I'll use a pulse ox to measure their oxygen levels when I'm doing their bedside swallow evaluation. Mm -hmm. And I gave him ice chips. That's usually what I start with, especially on somebody who hasn't eaten by mouth in weeks. You know, imagine how dry your mouth would be if you don't get to take a sip of water for weeks. Yeah. So I usually will start just with ice chips and his oxygen levels. He was already on like four liters of oxygen and his oxygen level dropped from 95 to low 80s. So 95 to 100 is good for people. Mm-hmm. Low 80s as real bad. Real bad. <laughs> yeah. Real bad. <laughs> real bad. <laughs> and like wet vocal quality, which means the water went into his airway, was on his vocal cords. And I mean, he just overtly aspirated and could not, couldn't tolerate anything by mouth. And I had that code status conversation with him. And finally, he was like, all right, I'm going to talk. And I told him, I said, you know, if you change your code status and you decide you want comfort feeds you know there you might aspirate but do you want to eat what's your quality of life going to be and he said all right i'm finally it was the first time he agreed to even have the discussion with his wife so Mm. sometimes it is rewarding to be able to like break through people and get them to understand that it's not necessarily a bad thing to have that discussion not And it's going to end up making you happier. So explain what you mean by comfort feeds. You don't mean like a G-tube to make it. You mean like eating the diet that they want to eat. Right. So if somebody is a full code, we have to put them on the diet that is most appropriate. Okay. You know, if that's puree with honey thick liquids, that's what they're put on, even if they want to be on a regular texture diet. If they're full code, they want everything done to keep them safe and alive. And that means we can't put them on a diet that's not appropriate for them. Right. But if they decide in the hospital, right in the hospital, exactly. But if they decide to not be a full code, be a DNR, DNI, and they opt for comfort feeds, they can eat what they want, essentially. And usually we will make a recommendation. I said this before, we'll recommend puree food with thin liquids, just because if you think about it, puree food, so applesauce, baby food, that's not going to occlude your airway. Mm -hmm. There's no chunks in it that are actually going to make you choke. And choking is, you know, can't talk, can't cough, turning blue, need the Heimlich maneuver. Puree is not going to do that to you. And then thin liquids are going to help keep you high hydrated. So we always recommend the puree thin liquids for comfort feeds. But I mean, if somebody wants to eat solid food, as long as they're not a full code, then they can do that. Has there ever been a time where you made a diet recommendation and it wasn't, you know, something kind of bad happened from it or, you know, or you kind of regretted your decision? Yes. Yeah. So I, that happens not often, but, um, 
I was talking about the silent aspiration earlier mm-hmm. and I ended up seeing somebody in the hospital. I feel like all of my stories come from the hospital because it's my most exciting place that yeah, work. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a man in the hospital and I saw him and he was like awake, alert, sitting up in bed. So great. He was already on a regular diet with thin liquids and I went in, it was lunchtime. He had his lunch tray. He's eaten. He's talking to me. He sounds great. Awesome. I sign off. He can stay on his regular diet, whatever. Then I go back to the hospital, like maybe three weeks later, he's back in the hospital. He is on a vent and had Mm -hmm. aspiration pneumonia. Turns out he had like gross silent aspiration. And I mean, every bite he took, he was getting something into his lungs, which like, I guess I can't blame myself. I, you, it's called silent aspiration for a reason. Right. Yeah. Like you always think like, should I have sent them for a video swallow study? You know, you always have like second guess yourself when something like that happens. And Oh God, I do that all the time. And when I was in grad school, I was placed in the hospital and my supervisor explained to me, she's like, there's always going to be a patient where you do them wrong. Like you do your best, you make your clinical judgment, but you, it's not what they needed. And she's like, there's always going to be that one patient. So I guess yeah, one of my one patients. (laughs) It's true. I mean, there's always times where you're like, oh, I should have known. Like, what if I miss a sign? Mm-hmm. What if I did this or what if I did that? You always, you, you can always play the what if right. game or, but there's a reason that medicine is it's called practicing medicine, you know, because yeah. it's not an exact science. I never thought as much of as that. We would, it's why we would like it to be. We're figuring it out as we go along and there's like a million studies that tell you one thing and then you get a second opinion and they tell you something else. It's You're just trying to get it right. I mean, we try our best, but yeah, you, sometimes you just don't know. Right. Yeah, I, there's a t- there's a bunch of times where I've been like, oh gosh, I wish I had, I I should have known more. Mm-hmm. But you learn from it. You do, learn and you you absolutely are like, okay, next time I know what that sign is more. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm more acutely aware of things, and I'm more perceptive about like, okay, that actually means something versus that doesn't mean something. Because of course, when you're new too, you're like, oh my god, I read the textbook that that <laughs> could be bad, and you're and then you're like, nah, that's fine. That's <laughs> whatever (laughs) and then you're like then you also know like oh wait this i'm gonna look into this (laughs) so it goes both ways yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) so someone that has just had a stroke Mm -hmm. obviously strokes can present or like a a traumatic brain injury is there any you know are they kind of similar in the way that you approach them are there kind of individualistic methods for certain people whether it's traumatic or it's kind of a, I guess, I mean, they could both be hemorrhagic. So. Right. Um, so like, I mean, it depends how they present. You know, we don't always treat people with TBI, traumatic brain injuries, unless they present with a symptom that requires speech therapy. Um, mm-hmm. Are they aspirating, having trouble swallowing? Um, is their speech slurred? A lot of times we'll do like pragmatic therapy with TBI patients. So we'll, you know, their impulses are down. But strokes are usually more, it's more obvious that they need speech. 
Usually, you know, I've seen people that have like full left sided paralysis that still don't need speech therapy. You know, they're swallowing okay, they're talking good, but they can't move their left arm or leg. But usually, I mean, one of the first signs of stroke is the slurred speech, usually. Right. So, and that facial droop, right. And the facial droop. And more often than not, people with strokes end up, I would say, you know, I don't have a statistic to show you, but in my experience, I say more. This is not a statistics podcast. Good. (laughs) More often than not, in my experience, somebody who had a stroke needs speech therapy, Mm -hmm. whether it be for swallowing language, speech, cognition. I mean, so definitely stroke. I mean, I feel like SLPs are in the forefront of their treatment team a lot of the time. Is there any other condition that you guys are so prominent in? Gosh, I'm trying to think. I mean, a lot of dementia, as we talked about, Parkinson's mm-hmm. disease is oh, yeah, that's huge for us because I haven't even mentioned this yet, but we also do voice therapy. So a lot of people. With yeah, par- talk about that. Yeah. So that's actually, I can't believe I didn't think of it already. That's like my favorite thing to do. I always say if I could do Lee Silverman voice treatment for 40 hours a week, I would which is a voice treatment that was designed I don't, it was designed by Lee Silverman's spouse I think and Lee Silverman was a Parkinson's patient and it was a treatment design or it was named after Lee Silverman it wasn't designed by their spouse but um it's a voice treatment designed by SLPs that's main focus is to be loud because when you're l- loud think about it like if you're screaming to somebody across the room you're automatically taking a deeper breath you're moving your mouth mm. more you're using your facial expression and you're moving all of your articulators, all the muscles and body parts you use to speak better. And people with Parkinson's, everything moves smaller. They take shallower breaths. They have no facial. A lot of them have that masked face. They don't make facial expressions, move their mouths. So that voice treatment was designed specifically for people with Parkinson's. And then that actually also turned into the Lee Silverman big treatment that physical and occupational therapists use. And its focus is doing all of these big movements, big steps, like big sweeping motions with your arms, because people with Parkinson's have that shuffling gait. So I would do that. Literally, I would do that Lee Silverman voice treatment 40 hours a week if I could. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always telling people and because this, the geriatrician that I work with, he's like, big steps, everyone. Big mm-hmm. st- you're going to fall. Yes. Even if you don't have Parkinson's, like, just step out in front of you. That shuffling gait that you get when you're older, it's, you're going to, you, you your legs are not out in front of you. You're just going to fall over. Just big steps. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I hear he says it like all day long and, and it wor- makes me chuckle. Working in a skilled nursing facility has made me so paranoid about people falling. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. now I do. I go to people's houses and they're there alone. And I'm like, what am I going to do if they fall? (laughs) Because they're not all steady on their feet like they should be when they're living alone. (laughs) Right. And they've got throw rugs everywhere Mm -hmm. and there's a cat. Oh, my God. It's just a a nurse and a therapist nightmare. I have one lady who has rolling chairs at her kitchen table on the hardwood floor. (laughs) I'm like, realize that chair is flying out from under you at some point, right? You have to know that. So, so fall falling aside, what are some of like your biggest pet peeves of as, as a speech language pathologist that you kind of see in your day to day? Obviously, people not following diet recommendations. Obviously, um, some other pet peeves. 
So a huge pet peeve of mine, sorry to go back to the diet recommendations, but in facilities, whether it be hospitals, nursing homes, whatever, rehab facilities, the staff just giving water to everybody, not (laughs) checking, you know, not checking orders. And oh, they sound they sound fine, though. I'm like, okay, but they had a video. They're not fine. They have, you know, check their chart. They have a specific diet. Um, Yeah. yeah. And I'm trying to think if I've been if I've done this, I don't usually give people water, but oh, I may have been guilty. (laughs) That's such a good idea. Because well, so I like, you know, and in in defense of myself here, because like, So I, ra- I, you know, I round on patients and I see mm-hmm. a lot of them and, and I, I'm not usually the one that gives them water. Usually I say, you know, ask the nurse or something because I, I don't know a lot of these things and I don't know them. And honestly, I go to multiple facilities. I really don't know where the cups are. So uh, to give it to them anyways, but yeah, you know, you wouldn't know and, and that's, and you want to be helpful. And I would say, oh, you are thirsty. Great. I want you to drink. We, we need to hydrate you. Mm-hmm. Let me just give you some water and oh yeah, you could choke and now it's my fault and that's terrible and I've just created a really bad situation for you and a lot more work for me and just is really and a lot more work for you as a speech language pathologist. So yeah, I mean, I feel like you should have like, we've got those like bracelets on everybody for fall risks. I feel like you should have their- Their diet. Their diet on their wrist. And I've like, I think this goes nursing home to nursing home, but there's a lot of facilities that you'll go to and they say that's like, we, we allow our patients to have dignity. So others can't know what their diet is. Like, we're not going to post it. Mm. That's not fair to them. And I'm like, okay, but they still go to the dining room and get their pureed meal next to their friend who's on a regular diet. So isn't it more important to keep them safe by putting like this sticker, color coded sticker on their wheelchair, but there's a you'll you'd be surprised maybe you want to be surprised I don't know that there's a lot of places that yeah. won't let you do that won't let you post a sign in their room that says what their diet is I'm not surprised yeah I understand the reasoning but I also don't agree with it yeah. because I think you're right it's safety first mm-hmm. and it's not safety because of a bad reason it's safety because of well-intentioned nurse practitioners that are visiting and want to give you water right. or something you know and, and yeah People don't know and, you know, patients are not always compliant and they don't always are, they're not always aware. Right. They don't always they have dementia. know. Exactly. Even if they don't have dementia, mm-hmm. they don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another pet peeve of mine. Listen to my education. Yeah. <laughs> yes. If you don't have dementia, please listen to what I've just spent the last half an hour of my day talking to you about very passionately because I very much like talking about this. I like talking about things. That's why I have a podcast, but patients do not like listening <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> well, do you have any other stories you want to talk about before I take up too much of your Friday night? Um, I did have one other like uplifting story that I was very proud yeah. of. Yeah. So I have a Oh yeah, tell me I those. Have, like my favorite client. She is a s- sweet baby angle and she has dementia and she still lives alone technically. She lives in the house that her husband built, but her son Aww. her son lives in like a detached apartment in the backyard. Her adult son, he's like in his 40s maybe. But she has a caregiver with her from like 9 a.m. to 4, maybe 9 to 4 every day, mm-hmm. Sunday through Saturday. And then somebody checks on her at dinner time and because she won't eat. She has lost so much weight. She is never hungry. Mm. You know, that conversation we had earlier. But with the time change, 
this month. It started getting dark at five o'clock, even earlier now, I feel like. But she was going to bed with the sun. Like as soon as the sun went down, she got in her pajamas and she went to bed. And then she was up at three o'clock in the morning, massively confused, knocking on her son's door, like couldn't find the light switches because it was pitch black. And her son was beside himself and talking about sending her to an assisted living facility. Mm -hmm. And I was treating her at this time. I was actually getting ready to discharge her. But with the time change, she had such a change in her cognition. I ended up staying on and I set. And then the last thing you want to do is change your location. Right. That too worsens her dementia. And I kind of educated the family and the caregiver saying like, you're kind of past the point of moving her into a facility. Like if you were going to move her into a facility, it should have been at the first signs of her dementia. So she was still aware enough to get used to it and to recognize that as home. Like she's past the point of being okay if she went to a new location. But I ended up staying on and I had this whole system for her. Like we were covering up light switches so she wouldn't turn lights off. So it wouldn't look dark as soon as the sun went down. And then I set up in her room like a little station with a huge clock with bright red numbers and a chart that basically said, is it 9.30? Look at your clock. And then (laughs) she would look at her clock. And I mean, this took like days and days of me going to see her at five o'clock at night when it was already dark and like trying to drill it into her. It's not bedtime. Go, go look at your chart. Is it 9.30? And she'd say, oh no, it's not. And on the chart, it says, yes, if it's 9.30, go to bed. And then no, go back and watch TV. (laughs) (laughs) So she'd say, oh, it's not 9.30, time to go watch TV again. And I'm telling you, this took like days and days of me seeing her every day and her caregiver doing it to train her to follow along to this chart. But I'm happy to report that she is no longer going to bed at five o'clock and waking up at three in the morning and her son is very happy she's able to stay in her house at least for now alone so that was like and i like i love her i I don't i don't have favorite (laughs) patients but she's my favorite patient oh we totally do yeah (laughs) and i'm like so thrilled that i was able to help her so that's amazing and like put her whole family at ease which was nice to see so dementia cog cog therapy with dementia patients can be okay every once in a while (laughs) Yeah, sometimes you you can do it. Some you can get really creative mm-hmm. and that's an amazing example of it. But it's got to be kind of on their terms, right. not on the family's terms. Mm-hmm. But it also takes a lot of the caregiver and family training. Like I wasn't the only yeah. one drilling these things into her. You know, I only see her Monday through Friday, however many times I'm going to get to see her that week and other than that, it's up to the family and the caregivers to keep training her on it until it becomes habit. Right. You know, some yeah. dementia patients can have new learning, but you need that repetition every single day. Yes. And it can't change. Cannot change. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as you get that one family member that's like, no, you can go to bed at 830. That just is going to yep. <laughs> go out the window. Mm-hmm. Like when her daughter came for Thanksgiving and <laughs> I was waiting for so that. We're back to square one. <laughs> that one family. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. There's always that one. Well, there's always there's always that one. <laughs> well, overall, <laughs> the good story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I guess well, you're still employed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> still got four jobs, so we're doing good. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for spending the time to talk to me. Of course. It was really <laughs> awesome. This is this was great. This is a different perspective that I think certainly I did not have. And many people, I think, had no idea uh, what you do. And it's obviously a very, very important role. So um, I'm so glad that you got to share this, this stuff with us. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> Well, thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed Annie's stories. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me with your own stories, you just want to comment, reach out to us on social media. So Antidotes Stories in Medicine is the Facebook group. There's Antidotes Podcast on Instagram. Antidotes Pod is the Twitter. My Twitter is Christine the NP. And of course, email me at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. And I've been so terrible about doing this, but our amazing music is by Peter Hopkins. Go check him out at petesingsthings.com. And thank you guys again for everything. I will see you all next week. Have a good one. Bye.